Okay, let me, let me pray as we get started here. Father, we are thankful that you give us an opportunity to learn what your word says about money, specifically when it comes to spending and budgeting. Um, we ask that you would convict our hearts and you would provide me, but would you give my words clarity and um, would you help us to respond to your word with action as we seek to bring you glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so this is our third session out of a total of six. There's two more, I guess, that are more formal lessons, and our last one is more of a, a Q&A. At our last session, we focused on the money that we give, and today we'll be thinking about the money that we spend. But before we get into our material for this evening, I have a question for you all. How should the gospel change how we spend our money? How should the gospel change how we spend our money? Our, our money. Our, our money. I'm going to get a couple volunteers. What are your What are your thoughts? How should the gospel change how we spend our money? God shows His love to us, and while we were Still sinners, Christ died for us. So how should the gospel change how we spend our money? Um, Jesus died to free us from slavery of loving money from having two servants so we just have to serve Jesus so we have a freedom of just serving Christ instead of being enslaved to money okay very good I guess an example from our own life would be um, instead of you know we used to buy like just random movies to watch for entertainment but uh, we've decided to you know instead of buying that stuff or entertainment to buy gospel movies like uh, movies about the gospel or mo- biblical movies that sort of thing you know so so that our entertainment our money goes to stuff that's feeding our soul and not just garbage stuff gotcha. you know so being being more mindful it's causing you to be more mindful yeah okay thank you Johnny I think left to our own advice devices, we would um, de- everyone, one of us would default to using our money to indulge ourselves. And I think it's not until the gospel is introduced into that equation that we can think some of something other than spending money for our own pleasure. Very good. Thank you. So, in many ways, those answers are the goal for today's class. We want to understand how our use of money should look differently because of the gospel. Proverbs 30, verses 8 and 9, you'll see that on your handouts there. It's the first verse listed there on the front covers there. It does a good job of summing up Scripture's approach to money. Give me neither poverty nor wealth. Feed me with the food I need. 
Otherwise, I might have too much and deny you, saying, Who is the Lord? Or I might have nothing and steal, profaning the name of my God. Give me neither poverty nor wealth. Money is amoral, meaning it's not inherently good or bad. Money can be used for enormous good in this life, good that will last until eternity. And yet, as Paul, writes to, as Paul writes to Timothy, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. You'll see 1 Timothy 6.10 on the handout there. And um, as it says, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. And we're going to be talking about this verse a little bit more as, as we progress. So money can be used in both ways. Our goal is to use it as a tool for us to master money versus it to master us. So to do that, we'll do a quick review of some principles we've already covered in the previous two sessions. Then we'll take a closer look at spending and budgeting. So a review of of some of these principles we addressed in our first two sessions. First one, God owns everything. And this is more than just our money. I think that many of our problems as Christians arise because we think about money separate from the rest of God's calling on our lives. We also looked at the fact that God has made us stewards of all that we have. And we will be called to give an account for the way we steward this money. Stewardship can look, a lot of diff- look, look like a lot of different ways for, for each of us. But we all have the same goal, to make the most out of this opportunity that was put in front of us for God's glory. Tremendous freedom, but one goal. Third, third point we want to revisit here is hoarding is spiritually damaging. God's given us a certain amount of money. And as Art Rayner outlines in his book, The Money Challenge, we should give generously, save wisely, and live or spend appropriately. Give generously, save wisely, and live appropriately. We'll touch upon saving wisely at our next session. And our discussion today is about living or spending appropriately. But, as we talked about in our previous session, we need to give the rest of our money away. Keeping for ourselves what we don't really need is an attempt, as Jesus says, to serve two masters. To serve both God and money. So, give, save, spend. Today's focus will help, hopefully help answer the question, how much should I spend on myself. And the fourth principle we'll review before we move on to our, our main idea answers the question, how much should I give? Every time we spend money on something, there's always an, a, a, an opportunity cost associated with it. We could have spent the money on something else. And it's this comparison shopping that God wants us to take very seriously. And as it says there... Um, on your handout, number four, 
we should give until the next dollar we would have given away would actually bring more glory to God if we spent it on our own needs. We talked about this in session number one. Every purchase should be examined in light of its alternative uses or ministry potential. Before we spend twenty, a hundred, a thousand dollars on something, we should weigh our purchases, the value of our purchase against what the same money could have been used in some other way. Remember, generosity is not marked by how much we give, but rather how much we keep. Generosity is not marked by how much we give, but rather how much we keep. So, there on your notes, let's get to our main idea, which is money should not constrain anyone's fruitfulness for God's kingdom. So let's consider how we spend and budget as we prod, pause, and promote. Let's consider how we spend as we prod, pause, and promote. So for our first point, let's consider how we spend as we prod our hearts, as we consider our lifestyle. Prod our hearts as we consider our lifestyle. We should ask God to prod or poke at our hearts and have other brothers and sisters in Christ prod as well as we consider our actual and our desired lifestyles. So the big question, a lot of you are probably wondering, how much should I spend? How much money do I get to spend on myself? Well, certainly not all of it if we're following God's commands, right? Remember that we're not owners of money, but, we're, but instead we are stewards. No more than a financial manager would be the owner of the money you'd entrusted to him. Maybe they said retirement money you'd entrusted to them. They're to invest it for you, not spend it all on themselves. But how many Christians have done that exact thing to God? The verse we looked at earlier from Proverbs, Proverbs 30 answers the question of how much should I spend with how much do I need? Specifically, it says, feed me with the food I need. Or as Paul writes in 1 Timothy 6, 6, but godliness with contentment is great gain. But even the question, how much do I need, can be difficult to grasp our hands around. So let me reframe the question again. Ask yourself, what lifestyle has God called you to? And by lifestyle, I mean the spending habits that you've been accustomed to. Where you live, whether or what you drive, how you dress, how you vacation if you do, how you eat, and so forth. We should be living within our means, not our desired lifestyle. So what is the actual lifestyle that God has given us? Are you spending within your means or above? What are the spending habits you've been accustomed to? And to translate back, our lifestyle actually determines what our needs are. For example, if you buy a house, you are responsible for the mortgage, you're responsible for the upkeep and the maintenance of that home. Randy Alcorn gives the example of someone who 
buys a boat. And the problem just doesn't stop there with the money required to buy the boat. As now I must justify my purchase by using the boat, which may mean weekends away from church, making me unavailable to teach a Sunday school class, share life with other church members, or you fill in the blank. So obviously I'm not just talking about a boat. Many of us here, maybe none of us here, can relate to that purchase of a boat. But substitute in any material possessions that you value the most. Jesus spoke of how worries and wealth can choke us, making us unfruitful. In Matthew 13, 18, and 22 to 23, he says, Ruby, Twenty-one and twenty-two. Matthew thirteen, eighteen, and then twenty-two to twenty-three. Thirteen, eighteen. You then listen to the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word about the kingdom and doesn't understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is the one sown along the path. So there's two dangers that we need to be aware of as we frame the question in terms of lifestyle. The first danger is that our lifestyle determines a set of needs that exceed our income. This is a very American problem, isn't it? We definitely have not improved as a society in this keeping up with the Joneses mentality. And I can assure you, with the exception of unusual and temporary circumstances, let's say um, in the case of unemployment perhaps, God is not calling you to a lifestyle that requires an income greater than yours. If you can't support your most basic obligations, he may be calling you, perhaps you and your spouse, to look for a job that pays better, maybe to find some side hustles to help make ends meet, or maybe it's going to require you tightening the belt, looking even more critically at what your spending habits are, looking at what you need and maybe what you don't actually need. But God is never calling you to a lifestyle that costs more than you make. And we'll talk about debt next week. So what we're going to do now is watch a quick two to three minute video clip that looks at American spending. numbers to add up. It's like we're never going to get out of this hole. Credit card debt, does it ever end? <laughs> Maybe I can help. We sure could use it. We've tried debt consolidation companies. We've even taken out loans to help make payments. Well, you're not the only ones. Did you know millions of Americans live with debt they cannot control? That's why I developed this unique new program for managing your debt. It's called Don't Buy Stuff You Cannot Afford. <laughs> See that. If 
you don't have any money, you should not buy anything. Hmm, sounds interesting. Sounds confusing. I don't know, honey. This makes a lot of sense. There's a whole section here on how to buy expensive things using money you save. Give me that. And where would you get this saved money? I tell you where and how in Chapter 3. Okay, but what if I want something but I don't have any money? You don't buy it. Well, let's say I don't have enough money to buy something. Should I buy it anyway? No. <laughs> now I'm really confused. It's a little confusing at first. Well, what if you have the money? Can you buy something? Yes. Now take the money away. Same story? Nope. You shouldn't buy stuff when you don't have the money. I think I got it. I buy something I want and then hope that I can pay for it, right? <laughs> no. You make sure you have money, then you buy it. Oh, then you buy it. But shouldn't you buy it before you have the money? No. Why not? It's in the book. It's only one page long. The advice is priceless, and the book is free. Wow, I like the sound of that. Yeah, we can put it on our credit card. <laughs> so get out of debt now. Write for your free copy of Don't Buy Stuff You Can't... Okay. Don't buy stuff you can't afford. Seems simple, but sometimes it's surprisingly difficult. So the second danger in answering what lifestyle God has called us to is that our needs rise proportionately to our income. So we'll talk about this later, but if you are seeing that your needs exceed your income, make it a point, perhaps as soon as this week, to talk with another brother or sister in Christ, to talk through your finances together. And we're going to talk more about community of grace a little bit later. I know it's countercultural to hear, but you don't deserve things your way. You don't deserve a break today. You don't deserve a little me time. You don't deserve to go out for dinner tonight because you're tired. You don't deserve a vacation. Say at Disney World or or wherever your heart's made desire. You gave up those rights when you became a Christian. So what do you deserve? Christ bore that on the cross. So God is not calling you to need more than you make. Your lifestyle largely consists of what you consider to be necessities. And what you consider necessary is something that is highly subjective, which makes our questions so important. So what lifestyle is God calling you to? Lifestyle should not be more than income, as we talked about. And as when we also consider what we talked about at our previous session, when it comes to giving, it should actually be less. And increases in income shouldn't necessarily translate to increases in lifestyle. Although our giving should rise proportionately. So let's take a closer look at a certain lifestyle referred to as a wartime lifestyle. We're constantly in need of being reminded that we are indeed at war 
against unseen but still very real enemies. Ephesians 6.12 says, Brave. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil spiritual forces in the heavens. As a result, we have to have a wartime mentality, choosing a lifestyle that makes sacrifices in response. Ralph Winter, founder of the U.S. Center for World Missions, used the term wartime lifestyle. John Piper, speaking about this wartime lifestyle, says that Winter stressed that God's people in a prosperous land like America simply cannot live as though there were not thousands of unreached people groups who are under enemy control. We have, from our commander-in-chief, a commission to go. We have the most powerful liberating bomb in the world called the gospel. Therefore, to just carry on our lives in this country as though we're at at peacetime shows how out of touch we are with biblical reality. Randy Alcorn, in his book, Managing God's Money, suggests we could also call this wartime lifestyle a strategic lifestyle. And this is different from what many may call a simple lifestyle. If I'm devoted to simple living... I might reject things like a computer because it's modern and maybe considered non-essential. But if I live in a wartime or a strategic lifestyle, the, the computer may serve as a tool for God's kingdom. A microwave isn't essential, but it's handy and labor saving and can free up time to engage in kingdom causes. Simple living may actually be self-centered. And more to come on this. Strategic living, rather, is kingdom-centered. It is all right to own certain possessions, or is, is it all right to own certain possessions for personal enjoyment? A wartime mentality can be taken to such an extreme that we feel it's unfaithful to enjoy any possessions, pleasures, or special activities. In the midst of his command that the rich be generous, in 1 Timothy 6, 17, Paul tells the rich to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with all things to enjoy. And even in wartime, soldiers take leave when it's possible. Our battle here lasts a lifetime. So many of us are grateful to have recreational items, be it a bicycle or a treadmill. Many of us are able to spend money on vacations that may not be necessary, but they serve to renew us. A number of us go out for dinner, enriching our relationships. And while these things aren't absolutely essential, they contribute to physical health and mental and emotional refreshment. Adopting a wartime lifestyle should cause us to choose, sorry, should cause us to use godly discretion in how we steward God's money for His glory. So, as we continue to examine our hearts, have five questions to consider in regards to our spending. 
Earlier, we read 1 Timothy 6.10. Paul says that money is the root of lots of different kinds of evil. And in response to this, Marshall Siegel, a writer for Desiring God, poses five questions that can help prod our hearts in regards to our spending. And you'll see them there on the inside cover of your handouts. And here are some of his thoughts. So first question, is my spending marked by Christian generosity? If someone were to look at your spending habits, would they see someone free of the love of money, holding their dollars loosely, and investing in ways that help others to experience Jesus? Or would they see someone very different from that? Marshall goes on to say that our joy in God should be, a, should be opening a delta of freedom and generosity where there was only a private pool before. Do you see and experience freedom to overflow to others? Does your spending look like Christ-like sacrifice for the sake of others? This is what makes generosity Christian. It looks like Jesus It commends Jesus. Question two. Does my spending suggest that I'm collecting for this life? Let us be reminded of Matthew 6, 19 to 20. No, no, it's Brian. No, yes, sir. Yes, please. Don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. Remember, nothing you can buy can be taken with you after this life. I think it was Art Rayner in his book... um, who said something along the lines of visiting your local landfill might serve as a good field trip to see what will happen to the majority of things we try and collect. So question three. What does my spending say about what makes me most happy? So continuing there in Matthew 6, Jesus said in verse 21... For where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. So if God makes you happy, your spending in love and ministry to others will proclaim that. If other things have stolen your heart, you'll tend to spend away, actually waste away valuable resources on temporary selfish comforts and have little left over for any worthwhile ministry and relationships. Benjamin Franklin once said, Money never made a man happy yet, nor will it. The more a man has, the more he wants. Instead of filling a vacuum, it makes one. Question four. Is my spending explicitly supporting the spread of the gospel? Billions of people in the world have no access. That's zero access to the good news of Jesus Christ. And in his book, Desiring God, John Piper says, If we, like Paul, are content with the simple necessities of life, 
billions of dollars in the church would be released to take the gospel to the frontiers. Billions of people in need and billions of dollars that could be supplied if we were all to adopt this wartime mentality, this strategic lifestyle. Imagine. And question number five. Is my spending so cautious that it's captured my heart and keeps me from loving those close to me well? As mentioned earlier, strategic living is kingdom-centered, whereas simple living, as respectable as it sounds, could actually be self-centered. Marshall digs deeper at hearts like mine who have attempted to adopt more of a simple lifestyle when he says one brand of budgeting wears the heroic cape of christianity while masking a secret infatuation with money one way this kind of frugality can eat away at us is by keeping us from blessing the ones really close to us our friends our neighbors our families even there's a thriftiness that will erode important relationships over time. He goes on to say, the same safeguards that guard us from spending on selfish temporary comforts for ourselves can often prevent us from, a, from good, tangible acts of love toward others in our lives. The reasonable logic might say that we wouldn't buy that for ourselves. So why in the world would we buy that for somebody else? Or maybe we think in terms of need. They don't really need that, so why am I going to buy that for them? I'll wait until it's something they actually need before I gift them something. At our worst, we're so focused on our own needs and plans that we miss the opportunity to bless somebody else altogether. While wisdom prioritizes needs, And stays within its limits, generosity gladly spends on others, even when it wouldn't spend on itself. God has given us responsibility to model his sacrificial, generous, and even lavish love for people in our lives. The habits of hoarders and spenders in many cases, may be more obvious, but Marshall reminds us that money can seduce even the savers. He says, spending less is no guarantee of freedom from the love of money. So money should not constrain anyone's fruitfulness for God's kingdom. So we've considered how we spend as we prod our hearts. And so for our second point, Let us consider how we spend as we pause and create a strategic budget. As we pause and create a strategic budget. The best way to manage your spending is through a budget. We often think of a budget as a financial tool, and it's actually more than that. It's a contentedness tool, and it's a communication tool which is wise at minimum for those that are single, absolutely essential for married individuals. And here we go again 
with 1 Timothy verse 6, but this time we're going to be looking at verses 8 through 10, and it tells us that... If we have food and clothing, we will be content with these. But those who want to be rich fall into temptation, a trap, and many foolish and harmful desires, which plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, and by craving it, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. So your budget can help to protect your contentedness and protect you from this ruin and destruction described here in 1 Timothy. So how is your budget a tool for contentedness? Well, it helps someone to restrain overspending. And I think that's probably the first thing that people think of when they think of a budget. It also helps to protect from false guilt or anxiety when you actually spend money. Honey, we're going to have to spend $600 to fix the car. And the good news is you've been budgeting for this monthly, and the time is now come. Now, perhaps you're going to be using the emergency fund that you've set aside for moments like this. No problem. The budget shows God's provision. It makes, also makes sure that your spending is based on what you need rather than rising, as we talked about earlier, with your income. So it's a tool for contentedness, and it's also a communication tool. It makes financial conversations strategic and proactive rather than constraint-driven and reactive. So let's say a spouse comes home with a brand new toy and the other spouse responds flipping out. It gives this avenue um, for communication. It also helps protect against judging a spouse. Let's say a spouse would love to spend a little bit on eating out. Discuss it. And if it's something you both decide to budget on, go about it that way. So there's not going to be any flipping out in response. In his book, The Money Challenge, Art Rayner says that God designed us not to be hoarders, but conduits through which his generosity flows. The pattern found in our finances should be this. Give generously, save wisely, and live or spend, as we're talking about here tonight, appropriately. If you haven't read this book yet... Um, it's an excellent book that looks, it would be applicable to the entire spectrum of individuals that are budgeting. Entire spectrum of uh, money stewards, that is. Although it's probably going to be more useful for those that are less comfortable and less confident in this area of managing their money. And on Friday, evidently there's another book that just came out by Art Rayner. I just found out about it last night. Um, called The Marriage Challenge, A Finance Guide for Married Couples. I don't know much about it, but my guess is it would probably be something um, pretty good. Most here are familiar with Dave Ramsey, and I continue to be thankful to Ruby's parents 
for gifting me the Financial Peace University CDs a few years ago, is that it helped provide a financial focus for our family to get out of debt and for saving. And if you too would benefit from practical guidance and structure in this area, talk to my in-laws. No, I'm joking. Um, Dave Ramsey has his seven baby steps. That's one. Um, that, that's one idea there. And Art Rayner has his eight money milestones, both very similar. But I like Art Rayner just a bit more because he's more explicit in his biblical stance as he puts giving as the very first step. And I think that's the difference between the seven and the eight in terms of the number of those, those steps. Another source of guidance, and you'll see this here on the, as you, on the inside cover, but on the right-hand side, um, some practical, under practical budget, budgeting resources to consider these ones that I'm mentioning right here. Another source of guidance providing the nuts and bolts of budgeting is Larry Burkett's Family Budget Workbook. It's been around for a lot of years, and it's helped a lot of people. There are also apps you can use to create a budget and track spending. I personally use Mint. I think PJ and Chris use Every Dollar by Dave Ramsey. Some people will use spreadsheets. And at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter what you're using to budget, but so long that you are actually budgeting. We're not going to have time to get into the practical some other practical tips and some guidelines for managing a budget, but you'll see them on the back cover of your handouts. So money should not constrain anyone's fruitfulness for God's kingdom. So we've considered how we spend as we prod our hearts, as we pause and create a strategic budget. So let us consider our third and final part point here this evening of how we spend as we promote a community of grace. Probably notice how complex and challenging many of these decisions are when it comes to spending. So before we finish our time together, let me take us to one last thought. That these are not decisions that we should be making on our own. We have a considerable opportunity as a church to make conversations about how we spend money and normal a part of life. We're willing to be open about struggles with pornography, with anger, with food, with pride. But so rarely do we talk about a love or the struggle about our love of money or how much we give or how we spend our money. That seems strange. Why would you be so transparent about everything else in your life except your money? especially when money is something that Jesus talked about so much. I guess he taught on it. I guess he talked about it, but he taught on it. We should talk about money as a church and discipling relationships with friends in our accountability groups. We should bring others to see how we are spending and giving, and we should be willing to have difficult conversations with brothers and sisters who we fear are acting more out of a love for money than a love for God. So 
So maybe some red flags going off as I'm posing this, and I want to go over and address two well-known dangers here. The first is the danger of judging. We're so quick to judge the financial decisions of others, aren't we? We're so self-centered that we often assume that everyone has our reasoning, our motives, our circumstances. We're always right, huh? And so we quickly apply moral categories to things that may just merely be preferences. For example, let's say there is a wife that grew up in a family who spent pretty freely on groceries. And she marries a husband who um, spent money on uh, music classes. When they, when they get married, the husband is appalled at the money that the wife is spending on the groceries and vice versa. Both quickly accuse the other in their hearts, at least, of being selfish and ungodly. But in reality, what they've each done is just adopted what their families had been accustomed to doing. Is it okay to skimp on food, to provide money for money less? I mean, for money. For, for my, tonight's lesson is free um, on music lessons. Or maybe eliminate lessons or cut back on lessons to provide more for food. Of course, it's okay. It just shows the danger of being judges in our hearts. So let me offer two suggestions to help you avoid wrong judgments of others' finances. First suggestion, don't assume somebody else's motives. When someone does something you don't understand, be careful of inserting your ideas of why they did it. Instead, if your relationship allows, ask them. And if it doesn't, drop the matter and assume the best, as Paul tells us to do in 1 Corinthians 13. Second suggestion that helps you avoid wrong judgments of others' finances, when you do speak to someone else about their financial decisions, make sure your motivation is compassion and definitely not disdain. Not, what in the world are they thinking? I'm going to show them how wrong they are. But rather, the attitude we see in Galatians 6.1. So, Galatians 6.1. So this is the attitude we should have. Brothers and sisters, if someone is overtaken in any wrongdoing, you who are spiritual, restore such a person with a gentle spirit, watching out for yourself so that you also won't be tempted. Okay, so that's the danger of judging. But there's also this other danger that's lurking we refer to as pride. Remember Matthew 6.1, where Jesus says, that our motive in giving should not be the praise of men. His focus wasn't secrecy for secrecy's sake, but a desire to have the right motives, making sure that you give that you give to honor God and not yourself. 
If this is a struggle for you, and I suspect in many ways it's a struggle for many of us, confess it to a church member. Maybe your discussion of your budget begins with a confession about how much you want to impress others with your giving. You're being transparent there. Or maybe due to where your heart is, you don't even get to the budget, but you begin speaking about your struggle with pride. So what can this look like from a positive perspective? Like so many other areas of our life together as a church, I think it'd be great for us to learn to talk in specifics about our financial choices, even while our relationships exude the grace that they should. So often, the moment someone becomes specific with their criticism of us, we cry out, legalism! And that's not how the Bible uses the term. There is no reason we cannot be highly specific in our encouragement and exhortation and, at the same time, overwhelmed with the grace of God toward us. If you haven't read the articles that PJ sent out last week um, about communities of performance and communities of grace, I recommend that you do so. That was last week. Sally actually replied earlier this afternoon. So it'll be at the top or one of the first things in your inbox, unless your inbox is just constantly flooded. But it was um, something that should be, um, you should see it more recent there. And um, mom and dad, if you guys are interested, communities of grace, you do it if you do an internet search for that. Um, Tim Chester would be another, I guess, a keyword. Tim Chester, Communities of Performance, Communities of Grace, and you can, you'll see those, those articles there. And it would be great to see brothers and sisters who are maybe more comfortable in this area helping brothers and sisters who may be weaker or less comfortable in this area, both with advice, but backing that advice up with Money, perhaps a loan or something that you are actually gifting to someone, so that lack of money would not constrain anyone's fruitfulness for God's kingdom. In previous churches, Ruby and I have been involved in this very sanctifying experience with others when it comes specifically to their finances, thanks to the other individual's transparency. I'd love to see us quick to confess areas of struggle and quick to encourage others as well here at Bethany. After all, the world loves to brand finances as merely private and personal, something that we don't talk about, right? I think that a culture of godly transparency can help to revolutionize revolutionize our approach to money. And we should pray and work to that end. And we'll talk more about this at our last class. So, in review, as we close here, money should not constrain anyone's fruitfulness for God's kingdom. So let's consider how we spend as we prod, pause, and promote. As we prod our hearts, as we consider our lifestyle, as we pause and create a strategic budget, and as we Promote a community of grace with money in our church. 
Let's pray. Father, your word speaks of how damaging the love of money is. We ask for your spirit's guidance as we examine and prod our hearts. As PJ remind us, reminded us of early, earlier, our disobedience interferes with us recognizing and relishing your glory, your goodness. We pray that we would see your goodness as you feed us with the food we need. Guide us in living within our means as we pause to create a strategic budget. And if we've already created that budget, that we would adhere to and continue to be um, very mindful of it. And help us to extend the same grace to others that you extend to us as we seek to promote a community of grace with money in our church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.